I just, I just wanted to take this chance to say thank you, Doug. No problem. <laughs> I'm here for you. We have power. All right, we're going to start over. How's that sound? We live, it's funny because this is the first line in the sermon. You ready for this? We live in an age of remarkable technological advances. (laughs) I'm not kidding. That is in the sermon. (laughs) Okay, you can all go home now. But truly, the, the age that we live in is filled with technological miracles. When I graduated from high school in 1985, I need to tell you that I owned an electric typewriter. In fact, my graduation gift was an electric typewriter. It is one of the greatest gifts I've ever received. And most of you who are like 30 or below are like going, what's an electric typewriter? <laughs> they don't even have typewrite, typewriting classes anymore. Now it's keyboarding, right? And so I own that typewriter, enjoyed it a great deal, typed all my papers in college with that little device. I listened to music in the 80s on my cassette deck in my car. That is my parents' car. There was no such thing as digital music. There were no streaming services. There was not such a thing as as Netflix or Amazon. I don't remember anyone that had a cell phone. No one had ever heard of Wi-Fi or the Internet. Now, fast forward to reality, to 2019, and I think you would agree with me that that's so much has changed. Typewriters are relics. They've been replaced by laptops. Cassette decks are antiques or a piece of junk, depending on how you look at it. Everything is digital, Blu-ray, etc., etc. My son has to teach me how to use all of these things. Much has changed over the last 30 or 40 years. And so when we think about the context of this new study, you might be tempted to think that we have very little in common with Habakkuk and all that he experienced in his day. The book of Habakkuk, written over 2,700 years ago. The geographical context, of course, is the, the Middle East. And this man, by the name of Habakkuk, he wrote this book during a time of, of national and international turmoil. The national turmoil that he experienced can be simply stated is that he served under an evil king. The international turmoil amounts to this, that Babylon had just emerged recently in Habakkuk's day as a new world power. And very shortly, the the Babylonian army would overtake Judah and carry its people off into captivity. I want to give you a little bit more context and show you the progression of kings. I made reference to this last week. We begin in this progression of kings by making reference to a very good king. This was King Josiah. King Josiah was a godly man. He, he got rid of the high places. He got rid of the idolatry in the land. Josiah's son, Jehoahaz, in three months, the king of Egypt, invaded Judah, killed Jehoahaz, and placed his brother Jehoiakim, Jehoiakim on the throne. There he would reign from 609 to 597. We work backwards. B.C. on the throne. Then we have Jehoiakim. 
Jehoiakim, followed by another evil king, Jehoiachin. We'll have a test on this later. These were, these were, take it on the chin, right? These were, sorry, these were evil, ungodly, rebellious men. All of them with the exception of Josiah. It was shortly after Jehoiakim took the throne that Habakkuk wrote of the pain and the misery and the injustice that his people were experiencing. Now, when we compare the differences in technology in Habakkuk, approximately 609 B.C., the contrast from that day to our day are absolutely remarkable. We live in totally different worlds. However, when we compare what Habakkuk was wrestling with, what he was struggling with, what he was battling with, we realize this. That his battle is very similar to our battle. His struggle is very similar to our struggle. Habakkuk was a Jewish man. And he pens the book that bears his name in this period of intense political struggle. This is a man who lived during uh, a time of blessing in the nation of Judah, a time of national revival under this good and godly king who we refer to as Josiah. Yet in the book of Habakkuk, we find him in a period of compromise. We find him in a period of uh, spiritual decline under this evil king, Jehoiakim. This man was watching his nation, the nation of Judah, literally declining from the inside out as he watched the the Chaldeans. And the Chaldeans, just another word for the Babylonians, advancing from the outside in. If you think about what's happening in America right now, and you think of the, the racial divide and the political divide, and I'll even throw a, just a smidgen of politics in, the rise of socialism in America. Can you believe it? You get a small idea of what Habakkuk was experiencing. I want to have you think about the political struggle with me just for a moment by way of introduction. Nations with mighty military power were a constant threat to Judah's well-being. For those of you who are old enough to remember what it was like to live through World War II, you understand the kind of political struggle that Habakkuk faced. Or if you were a little bit younger and you lived as I did during the days of the Cold War, at least the last days of the Cold War, you understand the threat of a foreign nation. Some of you remember the drills. You get under the desk or you go into the cellar or wherever it is because the threat to America was very real. Or if you are younger, if you are in junior high or high school or college, you understand that we live in a very dangerous world. Countries like North Korea and China constantly flex their muscles. North Korea, not quite so much anymore, but you understand what I mean. Or Iran develops nuclear capabilities and they they flex their muscles so that the whole world will see. This is the political struggle that we need to consider. Then consider the spiritual struggle. In Habakkuk's day, 
People, simply put, are abandoning God. They say farewell to the God of the Bible. Compromise in Habakkuk's day is actually considered a normal thing. It sounds so much like the United States of America. Compromise is seen as absolutely necessary. And so the lament of Habakkuk is very similar, I believe, to the compromise that we see all around us. The Bible reveals the three-headed foe of every follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're very familiar with that three-headed foe. It's the world, the flesh, and the devil. 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 to 17 refer to those three monsters. Now, the aim of the world, the aim of the cosmos, is to, is to squeeze us into its mold. The aim of the world, the aim of this ungodly system is to squeeze us so that we will become worldly. So that we will embrace the philosophy of this world. When the cosmos, you need to understand, begins to dictate our dreams and guide our goals and inform our ideology, here's what will happen. We will become worldly. When the cosmos, when the worldly system that Paul speaks of in Colossians chapter 2 verse 8, when it begins to dictate the things that we think, the plans that we make, the dreams that we have, when it begins to dictate all those things, we begin to be squeezed into this worldly mold and this worldly mindset. Now Habakkuk, Habakkuk is a man of God. Habakkuk is a prophet, but he is also a struggling prophet, as we will see. One of the things I so appreciate about the Word of God is all the warts are revealed. You think of Jeremiah, the brooding prophet. You think about Jonah, the, the reluctant prophet. You think about Moses, who, who killed some guys in the desert. You know, I appreciate the Bible so much because God doesn't hide the sin and the weaknesses and, and the failings of his people. Habakkuk is the same way. He's a struggling prophet. And as he scans his surroundings, he realizes that trouble is brewing in the land. He realizes, as we have already seen, that there is intense political pressure, which could also have economic impl implications. And so... He comes to the table and he does what any man of God would do in the midst of this spiritual and political and economic turmoil. He prays. He prays. He seeks the face of God. And his prayers are wrestling with a question that perplexes every Christian in this room today. His prayer addresses the intersection of God's sovereign control and the wicked events that surround us. Have you noticed that we're in a world that is surrounded by wickedness? This is the, the, the dilemma that Habakkuk faces. And so the title of this first message in this series is A Loud Lament. A Loud Lament. And I believe, I believe that if we dig deep, if we have the discipline to dig deep, we will discover that the prayers of Habakkuk, the laments of Habakkuk are also our prayers. That his laments are our laments. His frustrations are our frustrations. His struggles are our struggles. One commentator wisely says, Habakkuk is a mirror reflecting the struggle 
within the souls of God's people. Yesterday, at Ben Knight's memorial service, a woman came up to me afterwards, and she's a woman who attends another church, an older woman who I met at a previous memorial service. And uh, she came up to me and she said, Pastor, I felt like you were talking directly to me, like you've been reading my mail. And you know that when you get a comment like that, that the word of God is doing a special work. And so with that thought in mind, I want to ask you this. Are you prepared to be confronted with the word of God this morning? Do some of these statements ring true for you? God, where are you when I'm struggling to pay the bills? God, where are you when my marriage is falling apart? God, where are you when I work so hard in school and my grades go south? God, where are you when my spouse has has turned from the faith of her youth? God, where are you when my child rebels? God, where are you when my health declines? God, where are you when my business tanks? God, I thought you were sovereign. I thought you were in control. As we open to this first passage this morning, our bearings need to be straight. We need to be in line with the truth of the scripture. And I believe the best way to be in line with this passage is to reaffirm the sovereignty of God. I found this, that many believers affirm the sovereignty of God. And they may even hear a statement like I'm going to read from A.W. Tozer in a moment. And they may even even say, Amen, brother. But then what typically happens is you hear a word like yet or but or however. Or what about? Or what about, and we need to get rid of all that terminology and let A.W. Tozer's words stand. He says this, God is said to be absolutely free because no one and no thing can hinder him or compel him or stop him. He is able to do as he pleases always, everywhere, forever. To be thus free means also that he must possess universal authority. He says the sovereignty of God is a fact well established in the scriptures and declared aloud by the logic of truth, period. No yets, no yeah buts, no but did you think about, period. God is sovereign and so our our boundaries are set. We have the right parameters and I believe that Habakkuk believed this great reality. You are going to hear struggle in the words of Habakkuk as early as this morning. But I believe with all my heart that Habakkuk understood and believed and embraced the sovereignty of God. But as we will discover here in just a minute, we will learn that he also battled with this doctrine. He believed the doctrine, but he battled with the doctrine. He struggled to reconcile with what he knew was true and the evil that surrounded him. Have you ever been there in your Christian life? God, I know this is what the scripture teaches. I understand you're sovereign. I believe that you're totally in control of all things. I even confess you ordain everything that comes to pass. Yet, how can we live in this wicked context? I don't understand. What he believed in his head was not computing 
with what he was experiencing in his heart. I want to have you turn with me with your finger in Habakkuk 1. Go with me to the New Testament. And I want to highlight a verse that I would encourage you to to mark up in your Bible. Because it's a really, really important verse. Habakkuk, Habakkuk was like the man in the New Testament who cried out to Jesus in Mark chapter 9, verse 24. I believe Jesus. Isn't that a great place to begin? I believe Jesus. Help my unbelief. Isn't that something? And my prayer is that that would speak to you today, that that would minister to you today. Because as we think about the doctrine of God's sovereignty, some of you can relate to the man in the book of Mark. You say, Jesus, I believe. Help my unbelief. Help my unbelief. That's exactly what Habakkuk is wrestling with. All this is to say that we have much in common with this Old Testament man. And so when our health fails, when our country goes down the tubes, when our marriage begins to crumble, when life begins to collapse, the question I would like to pose is, how shall we respond to a God who is absolutely sovereign over all? What we have here in Habakkuk 1 verses 1 to 4 is a, a very unique inside look, if you will, at the prayer of this Old Testament man. I want to have you stand with me for the reading of God's word. And we will read the first four verses together. Habakkuk chapter 1 verse 1. This is God's word. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. So justice goes forth perverted. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray together. Lord, we are eager to move into this new study. God, I want to thank you for this little book and the way that is, it has ministered to me, the way that it has bolstered my faith and encouraged me. And I thank you for this, this godly man who was much like the, the man in Mark 9. He believed, but his unbelief needed to go. And so, Lord, I pray for those of us today who who believe these doctrines, who believe the word of God, but are struggling with unbelief. I pray that you would help someone today with their unbelief. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would minister to someone in a, in a powerful way, even right now as we're praying, that this mighty work of grace would take root in someone's heart. And so we, we look forward to, to learning some great lessons in this passage. We look forward to the book in several weeks ahead and ask that, that you would comfort us, you would encourage us, that you would strengthen us through the power of the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.
We want to begin by taking a look at Habakkuk's first lament. And I want you to keep in mind as we, as we study these words, as we really go into an in-depth study of Habakkuk's prayer, is that this is not the first time Habakkuk had, had prayed about these things. These were an ongoing reflection of Habakkuk's heart. And as we examine this first lament, there is an overriding question that I believe surfaces in these verses, most notably verses 2 to 4. Here's the question. The question is, how can a holy God allow evil to exist and persist? How can a holy God allow evil? Evil, And as we think about that broad category as a question, I want to look at three subordinate questions that emerge throughout this short prayer. Question number one, look at verse two. O Lord, Habakkuk prays, how long shall I cry, to, cry for help and you will not hear or cry to you violence and you will not save? Here's the question. See if you can recognize it. God, why won't you answer my prayer? Would you raise your hand if you've ever prayed a prayer like that? God, I have been praying for my wayward daughter. I have been praying for my wayward son. I have been praying for my husband, who's not a believer. I've been praying for my wife. I've been praying about my health. God, why will you not Answer me. In verse 2, I want you to pay close attention to that word cry. It comes from a Hebrew word, and Hebrew is such a rich language, and we we can learn so much uh, as we dig deeper in the language. But that word cry comes from the Hebrew word that means to utter a loud request. That's why my voice today is louder than normal, because Habakkuk is not saying, Oh, Lord, how long shall I cry for help? He's saying, Oh, Lord! I'm crying. I'm begging here. This word cry means to be filled with intensity. This is a prayer that that Habakkuk cries from the depth of his heart. Please understand, Habakkuk's not the first one to pray a prayer like this. In Job chapter 30, verse 20, listen to Job. And we don't need to review what Job had been through, but let's just put it this way. He had a rough life, right? Right? And he said this, I cry to you for help and you do not answer me. See, we have so much in common with Job. We have so much in common with Habakkuk because all of us have prayed a prayer very similar or identical to this. Why, God, will you not answer me? In Job 19.7. The same word is used, translated cry. Behold, I cry out violence. But I am not answered. Job says, I call for help, but there is no justice. Tuck that away because we'll see Habakkuk making the same claim. The word here, the word here in this passage means to listen and pay attention. God, why won't you pay attention to my my passionate cry? Now drop down. Drop down in verse 2. Do you see the second sentence where he says, Or cry to you violence? Something interesting happens here. The word translated cry, the English word cry, is a totally different Hebrew word than the one that we saw at the beginning of verse 2. 
This is a Hebrew word that means to utter forth a loud request for help with intensity. This term has a a pathos or an agony attached to it. In Exodus chapter 2 verse 23, we see the same word translated cry. Listen to Moses. During those many days, the king of Egypt died. And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery. And they cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. You remember Israel in the days of the Old Testament. They would cry to God. They would beg to God. You see, this cry in verse 2 is a cry of desperation. It is as if Habakkuk is, is literally shouting to God. This is a cry for help due to the violence that is in the streets. Have you ever been there? Have you ever been at the place where you just say, God, I have prayed for weeks or months or years. Many of you have heard the story, and I won't retell it, but the story of St. Augustine who was living a a blatantly sinful life, committing sexual immorality with a woman that was not his wife, living in wanton sin and and immorality and carnality. And his wife, Monica, his wife, his, his mother, Monica, prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed. And I'm sure that Monica prayed prayers like Habakkuk and Job. God, why will you not answer my prayer. Well, the end of the story is that one day God did answer Monica's prayer, and Augustine became one of the greatest thinkers in the history of the church. Have you ever stood in Habakkuk's shoes? Have you ever prayed this this cry, this prayer of desperation? You might even be there today. My suspicion is that many of you are there today. You're praying for a new job. You're praying for your spouse. You're praying for your rebellious child. You're praying. I know many of you are praying for revival in the land. I know Jerry and Judy are praying for revival in the land. The prayer team is praying for revival and reformation at Christ Fellowship and revival and reformation in our country. Have you ever cried out to the Lord and wondered if he was even there? If you've ever prayed such a prayer... You can certainly understand the pathos behind Habakkuk's prayer. There's a second question. Look at it in verse 3. He says, Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. The question here can be framed as follows. God, why do you tolerate injustice? Now think about this. Habakkuk, again, is a godly man. He's a believing man. He believes in the sovereignty of God. But right now he's struggling with unbelief like the man in Mark chapter 9. Why do you tolerate injustice? Now, in a, in a clear and lucid moment, we would say that God is a God of justice. There is no injustice in his character. It is impossible for there to be any injustice in God's character. Yet, Habakkuk prays, why do you tolerate injustice? In verse 3, the word translated iniquity is a Hebrew, comes from a Hebrew word that is meaning repugnant behavior or evil. Why do you make me see evil? 
Turn back with me to the book in uh, to the book of First Samuel, First Samuel chapter fifteen, and. Uh, this is a, a section of scripture that I would often turn young people to when I was a youth pastor. And I would like to commend this verse to the first two rows and anyone else in the sanctuary this morning who is struggling with rebellion. Because here is the word of the Lord to King Saul. 1 Samuel 15 verse 23. He likens the sin of rebellion to the sin of divination. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. But this isn't the only thing, namely iniquity, that is on Habakkuk's mind. He also wonders aloud in verse 3, and you can kind of see it if you read through the lines. He essentially says, God, why are you so complacent? We would put a... In, in this kind of language today, God, why are you sitting on your hands? Why do you just sit there? He says, destruction and violence are before me and strife and contention arise. The Christian Standard Bible translates this phrase as follows. Strife is ongoing and conflict escalates. I like that a lot. Strife is ongoing and conflict escalates. And Habakkuk implies, God, you're sitting on your hands. Or better yet, God, this is not fair. Have you ever said that to God? God, it's just not fair. Why would you bring this into my life? It's just not fair. Hold your finger in Habakkuk. I want to turn your attention to three New Testament passages to Go a little bit deeper. Go to 2 Timothy with me, please. 2 Timothy chapter 3. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul the Apostle writes about the godlessness in the last days. And let me just say that we have arrived. We are in the last days. And he says in 2 Timothy 3 verse 1, But understand this, that in the last days, there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, Treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power, avoid such people. Go over to Matthew chapter 24, please. Matthew chapter 24, beginning in verse 7. We'll get a better idea of the the evil that Habakkuk is facing, the evil that we face as well. Matthew chapter 24. Look at verse 7. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. And all these are the beginning of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. And you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. 
And many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to the nations. And then the end will come. Flip over to one, one more passage, if you would, to First Peter chapter 4. For one more snapshot of the ungodliness that surrounds us. First Peter chapter 4, beginning in verse 12. The Apostle Peter says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because of the spirit of glory of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief, or an evildoer, or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Now, even in light of these New Testament references, can you understand Habakkuk's frustration? Can you understand the the pathos in his spirit? Have you ever been, once again, in a similar situation? God, why would you allow evil to inflict my family? Why would you allow evil to spread unchecked through my country? I want you to think about the country that we live in. I should tell you that it was totally unrelated to preparing for this sermon. But on Friday morning, I just out of the blue decided to read the United States Constitution and the Declaration of Independence just for fun. And here was my thought when I hit the last word. Man, we, we, we're in big trouble. We have moved so far away from what the founding fathers intended when those documents were written. Think about it. Abortion on demand. As we heard from the governor of Virginia a few weeks ago, he didn't use the word euthanasia on demand, but that's exactly what he was referring to. The pornography industry, the sex trade industry, human trafficking, the drug crisis and the opioid epidemic. We're in big trouble in this country. And so we can understand what Habakkuk is wrestling with. He's asking God, God, why would you tolerate injustice in the land? Go to verse 4. He says, the law is paralyzed. And justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. I don't know about you, but this is a shocking series of statements. He is essentially saying in verse 4, God, why do wicked people get off the hook? God, why do these ungodly people go go scot-free? And he makes an absolutely stunning statement when he says the law is paralyzed in verse 4. 
The Hebrew term means numb. It means cold. He says, God, why is the law numb or cold or paralyzed? He is essentially saying, well, it looks to me like the law is no good because people are doing whatever they want. Justice is not being served, so says the prophet. Why do the righteous suffer at the hands of the unrighteous? Once again, can you relate to this? Have you ever prayed the prayer, God, why is my friend blessed? He's an evil person. Yet he got the job promotion. And what I get, I got nothing. God, why is it? And I can tell you one of the questions that I have posed. Why, and not in a rebellious sense, but in a searching sense, why is it that some of the most ungodly people live year after year after year after year? You think about some of the heroes in church history. I have a theory that some of the great godly leaders in church history died in their 50s. Think about it. Charles Haddon Spurgeon. Isn't that something? Calvin. Luther. Men who died young. David Brainerd died when he was 28 years old. A faithful missionary to the, to the Indians in Massachusetts. God, why? That's the essence of... Habakkuk's question here, why do the righteous suffer at the hand of the unrighteous? The burdens that Habakkuk bears, I believe, are the burdens that each of us bear or will bear in the coming days. Why? Because we live in a world that is racked by evil. The curse has not yet been lifted. And until evil is vanquished, we will continue to wrestle with the problem of evil. In C.S. Lewis' book, The, the Problem of Pain, it's a, it's a powerful little book. He says this. He says, you would like to know how I behave when I'm experiencing pain, not books about it. You need not guess, for I'm a great coward. I remember when I first read that by Lewis, I thought, really? C.S. Lewis, a coward. Yep, he says, I'm a coward. He says, when I think of pain, of anxiety that gnaws like fire and loneliness that spreads out like a desert, and the heartbreaking routine of monotonous misery, or again of dull aches that blacken our whole landscape, or sudden nauseating pains that knock a man's heart out at one blow, of the pains that seem already intolerable, and then are suddenly increased of infuriating, scorpion-stinging pains that startle the movement of a man who seemed half-dead with his previous tortures. Lewis goes on, and he says this, and I think what he says is a reflection of all of our hearts. Let me just do a test. How many of you love pain? That's what I thought. Look around the sanctuary. No one loves pain. Some of you have been with me at the hospital, and you know that I'm Mr. Squeamish, right? I don't like pain. I don't do pain. And so listen to what C.S. Lewis says. He says, if I knew a way of escape, I would crawl through the sewers to escape pain. Just for fun. I know it's a little gross. How many of you would crawl one mile through the sewers if you never had to deal with pain again for the rest of your life? All the kids are like, yeah, me. 
Man, if someone said, hey, Steele, you crawl one mile through the sewer, and when you get to the other side, after all the stink and filth, you're pain-free. Sign me up. I'd do it. I think Lewis has tapped into something very, very important here. Now, next week, as we begin to uncover verse 5, we're going to see God's response to Habakkuk's plea. But today, as we close, I want to leave you with some practical principles. I like to call these pilgrim principles. Most of you know I love John Bunyan. I love uh, Pilgrim's Progress. And so when I'm thinking pilgrim principles, I'm thinking we as Christ followers are on the same team. And we're, we're on our way to the celestial city, right? That's our final destination. And along the way, we're going to run into bumps and, and bruises. And, and some of us will be uh, captured by the giant. And he'll put us in Doubter's Castle. You remember that scene in the book? Some of us will fall into the slough. Some of us will have friends that say, ah, get, get rid of your Christian convictions. You don't need to go that direction. So we are all heading to the celestial city. And I want to give you a few pilgrim principles to encourage you along the way. Number one, appeal to God in prayer. Habakkuk is a terrific example of a man who is eager to present his requests honestly to God. But as you make your appeal, never fall prey to the idea that God is comfortable with sin or that God is a God of injustice. Remember, God hates sin. God hates sin and he will punish every sinner who refuses to turn from it. Romans chapter 1 verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And so appeal to God in prayer. Be honest with God. Share your hurts. Share your longings. Share your pain. And know that you have a God who is there for you to receive you and to give you mercy and grace and help in time of need. Number two, I want to encourage you to admit your painful circumstances. Admit your painful circumstances. In Philippians chapter 4, Paul says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. That word guard comes from a Greek word that can be translated as umpire. If you're like me and you love baseball, you've got to read that verse one more time again. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will, will umpire your hearts in Christ Jesus. He's the one calling the balls and the strikes. He's the one overseeing every detail in your life. He will grant you peace. And so admit your painful circumstances to him. Number three, aggressively, aggressively fight the fight of faith. I so appreciated Kyle's words and his comments about Ben Knight, that Ben Knight finished the race. He fought the fight of faith and he finished a faithful man. When we wrestle in prayer, our faith is stretched and we learn to fight the fight of faith. It is my joy 
as your pastor to walk with you in your fight of faith. Faith. It is the, the joy of the elders and the deacons to walk with you in this fight. John Piper says, as a pastor, I do not think it is my job to entertain you in the last days. I want you to think about those words. Because we live in a culture where pastors are expected to have the greatest jokes, right? And to to begin with something funny and to entertain the flock. And it's nonsense. The pastor is not called to entertain the flock. The pastor is not called to entertain the flock. Piper continues, It is not my calling to help you have chipper feelings while the whole creation groans. He says, My job is to put the kind of ballast in the belly of your boat so that when these waves crash against your life, you will not capsize, but make it to the harbor of heaven. Battered and wounded, but full of faith and joy. That is one of the most important jobs I have and the elders and the deacons to come alongside you and to encourage you and to equip you and to make sure that you are ready that when the day of evil comes, that you may be wounded, you may be battered, you may be beaten, you may be bloody, but when you reach the shores of the celestial city, you'll be filled with faith and filled with joy in the Lord Jesus Christ. Finally, acknowledge that every trial has a divine purpose. This is the toughest one. Acknowledge that every trial has a divine purpose. As I wrote that sentence, immediately I thought of a situation that I went through in our previous church where we walked through some very, very dark days. The days were so dark based on the circumstances that it sent two pastors, one being myself, to the emergency room with chest pains. This was, these were stress-filled days. And I don't know if at that point in my Christian journey I could have said, I acknowledge that every trial has a divine purpose. I think I was saying more, I think my thoughts said something like, uh, this really stinks. This is really hard. C.S. Lewis says, let him but sheathe that sword for a moment. And I behave like a puppy when the hated bath is over. I shake myself as dry as I can and I race off to reacquire my comfortable dirtiness. If not in the nearest manure heap, at least in the nearest flower bed. And that is why tribulations cannot cease until God either sees us remade or sees that our remaking is now hopeless. And we know that's not the case. We know that our remaking is filled with hope. We know that God will conform us to the image of his son. And so I want to welcome you this morning on this amazing journey through the book of Habakkuk. And I trust that you will learn the lessons that Habakkuk learned, that we will learn these lessons well together, that God is sovereign. That we acknowledge that every trial, no matter how evil, no matter how wicked, no matter how hard, has a divine purpose. That he is ordaining everything that comes to pass and his purposes for you are good purposes. 
Everything he does is for your good and for his glory. That is one of the overarching lessons that Habakkuk learns and teaches in this book. But it's going to take some time to get there. Because as you've seen, he is wrestling. This is a lament. This is a cry. He's beckoning to God. Why? 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 Next week, we'll come back and see how God answers him. Read ahead if you'd like. Let's pray. Father, thank you for... For your assistance this morning, again, I'm looking forward to the lessons that we will learn in this little book. Father, I pray that uh, we would affirm your sovereign control over all things. I know many of us are like the man in Mark. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. We affirm the fact of your sovereignty. We affirm your control over all things. But sometimes what we know in our head doesn't seem to line up with what we're cherishing in our hearts. And so I pray that as we study this book, that our heads and our hearts would intersect, that the things that we know to be true in our minds, that we would cherish those realities in our hearts. And so comfort this, your people. Whatever the circumstances are in individual lives or families, I pray that you would encourage people on this day. And now we sing these songs with a Hearts that are filled with faith, all to the glory of God, in Jesus' name, amen.